Welcome everyone to our first BJJ podcast of 2021. I am Andrew Duckworth and a happy new year and a warm welcome from your team here at the Bone and Joint Journal. We hope all of our readers and listeners have had an enjoyable festive period. And as always, we'd like to thank you for your continued comments and support, as well as a big gratitude to our many authors and guest interviewers who take part. Looking ahead to this year, which we hope we'll see us moving onwards and upwards from the COVID-19 pandemic and what was a very difficult 2020 for all of us, we aim to continue to deliver on a range of topics through our series with our primary aim to improve the accessibility and visibility of the studies we publish here at the journal for both you as our readers and listeners, as well as for our many authors. For this month's highlighted study, as you know, over the next 20 minutes or so, we will be covering a range of aspects for the chosen paper, emphasising the important points of how the study has been put together, as well as some take-home messages from the paper and how these potentially fit into your day-to-day clinical practices. We also hope to give you a behind-the-scenes insight into how the authors have developed their study and give them an opportunity to put forward the key findings of their work. So today I have the pleasure of being joined by my editorial board colleague here at the journal, Mr. Mike Whitehouse from Bristol, to discuss their study entitled The Effect of Antibiotic-Loaded Bone Cement on Risk of Revision Following Hip and Knee Arthroplasty, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, which has been published in the January edition of the BJJ. Welcome, Mike, and a big thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thanks very much. Looking forward to it. Well, Mike, let's, let's just get straight onto the paper. So the aim of the study was to compare the effect of antibiotic-loaded bone cement with plain bone cement on the overall revision rates for periprosthetic joint infection following primary elective total hip and knee replacement. So, Mike, for our listeners, if you could just give us a brief introduction to the paper and some background to why PGI is such a devastating complication, as we all know. Yeah, so we really wanted to kind of explore this from the point of view of um, potential benefits and potential harms. Um, so obviously antibiotic loaded bone cement for us in the UK is often the default option and uh, in, certainly within Europe that tends to be the case. However, obviously we've got the situation in the US where the FDA um, haven't approved it as they consider it to be a, a kind of drug delivery system uh, rather than anything else. So obviously very conflicting positions around the world and strongly influenced by the fixation that people use. Now, um, obviously, we know from kind of work that we've done on the National Joint Registry data that if we look at kind of time period specific effects, then there's a higher risk of revision in the first three months following surgery for uncemented implants, but then they're lower after that. So it kind of suggests there's a potentially prophylactic benefit early on following surgery with antibiotic loaded bone cement. However, we do know that putting antibiotics into cement alters its mechanical properties. So there could be a benefit in terms of revision risk for prosthetic joint infection, but we also looked at overall revision risk to see if actually we are creating a problem in terms of aseptic loosening and later causes of failure as well. Now, as you say, prosthetic joint infection is devastating. We've got a kind of patient group that worked with us in Bristol on our infection studies, and two of our patients have had cancer and infected joint replacements and tell us the infected joint replacement was worse. It's devastating, it's long-term treatment function, uh, outcomes are very different to what we expect. And these are for um, patients who went for for an operation where there's overwhelming <clears throat> chances of success and good outcome. So it really is something that we want to drive down on and minimise the risk of. Absolutely. I think that's that's everybody's experience, isn't it? It's that dreaded fear of the infection uh, and joint replacement. Like you say, it's so rare, but but so devastating for the patient. And, and, and it has such long-term effects for them moving forward. You know, they're never really right again after it are they it's just so so, so impactful on their life before we move on to the meat of the paper mike you know i think one of the important points you make in the introduction is about the outcome that you've used and you chose revision you know all cause revision rather than just infection as your outcome and what was your sort of reason for this because that you know you say in the past a lot of people have used just pgi as their primary outcome 
Yeah, so I think there are definite advantages for using a relatively simple definition of the outcome for evidence synthesis, as it allows you to pull together kind of disparate studies that are being set up in different ways as long as they have used a clear definition. So obviously revision is binary. It happens or it doesn't. As long as you're capturing it, then you can be confident that someone has had a revision or not. Definition of PJI is more controversial. Obviously, there's a number of different systems uh, out there. And, and part of the challenge we face is when we're doing evidence synthesis, these studies are taken from over a prolonged period of time. And the definitions used within those classification systems have changed mm. over that period of time. So if a study says they've used MSIS criteria, um, you have to be careful to check which actual version of those have been used. Mm. Talking to the patients when we kind of consider the important outcomes to them, when you kind of talk to them about, you know, what matters to them, really it is their pain and their function and the number of operations they have. They don't really care whether they're still infected from a kind of biochemical point of view. They care is to the impact on them. Mm. And obviously, you know, a revision for infection is a major undertaking. And people sometimes say, well, you know, are you sure it was infected? The fact is the surgeon has exposed their patient to the morbidity of this revision operation. And we don't think that the revisions that we do for infection are undertaken lightly. Mm. So I think, you know, and certainly confident in terms of the ability of surgeons to appropriately sort of diagnose and manage these patients. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? I was, was speaking to Matt Costa a couple of months ago and he was saying the same thing about open practices that we focus very much on infection as a classification system. But actually, when you speak to the patients, it's actually their pain, their disability that they get yeah. rather than if they've had an infection or not. It's it's actually the pain and disability. And, and, and if they have to have further operations, that really is what impacts on them the most and and what, what we, we really should be looking at. And it's interesting. So if we move on to sort of the, the, the meat of the paper, the methods. So obviously, this was a systematic review with meta-analysis. It's performed, you know, very high standard prisma and moose guidelines and the primary outcome as we said just to repeat was revision rate for pgi and all cause revision between antibiotic loaded bone cement and plain bone cement groups and you consider them separately for total hit replacement and total meat replacement so mike i suppose key to any review as you know better than anybody what were the eligibility criteria for this, one of the studies getting into the analysis and you mentioned joint registries and and how did you determine whether they could be included or not so I think, you know, um, uh, as ever, you, you set out to hopefully have a good number of definitive RCTs you can bring together and get yourself a, a rock-solid answer. Unfortunately, this is an area where there's a distinct lack of definitive RCTs in order to inform our practice. So there was one that we were able to include with uh, just over 3,000 patients in it. So, you know, we set out fairly pragmatically to say, OK, well, in order to answer this, we're looking at a relatively rare complication in revision for PGR as one of the outcomes. Therefore, we're likely to need big numbers. Uh, to crack this particular nut, as it were. And, you know, any difference because um, the effect size that you get through something like antibiotic-loaded bone cement, if it was that big an effect size, we'd already have the answer because it would be very apparent. So we, you know, wanted to take a broad approach. Obviously, we needed to assess the quality of the data bringing into this uh, and make sure it was actually telling us what we thought it was telling us. Mm. So observational studies obviously offer you the advantage of large sample sizes, potential for long-term follow-up. Registries are a very useful source of data for research questions like this, but you have to be very careful to check actually, have they the registry looked specifically at the exposure? Have they got the outcomes that you're interested in and how that pieces together? And obviously with the kind of range of follow-up available, the average follow-up available in a registry is often quite surprisingly short in comparison to the maximum follow-up just because registries increase in size as time goes on and accumulate cases. So we included studies with unselected patients. So we didn't want these um, to be limited to patients, say, just with diabetes 
and being selected. So this was unselected patients who were undergoing primary joint replacement. So we did exclude traumatic indications, revision uh, procedures, we're interested in primaries. So studies had to report on revision rates of PJI oral causes, and the exposure had to be antibiotic loaded bone cement versus plain bone cement uh, with both exposure groups included rather than just studies that just had one. Okay. That was the reason why we ended up only being able to use Australian registry data because other registries report on the results, but not on those exposures. So there were some studies that we found where other interventions that could influence the outcome were also included, such as allocation to administration of systemic antibiotics or not, but only in one group. So we felt that might have an effect, given that we all uh, are strong believers that perioperative antibiotics are a good thing for these patients. Yeah. So we excluded those studies because that could uh, potentially influence the effects we saw. When there were multiple studies that we found that reported on the same cohort, we preferred the one with either longest follow-up or the most comprehensive data. So if a longer-term follow-up didn't have the exposure and outcome data we needed, we'd revert to the shorter one, but otherwise we aren't for the longer-term follow-up. Right, great. That's really nicely put, Matt, because obviously it's such an important way that where you synthesize the data down and what what actually data we're including, because one of the comments about meta-analysis is it's the data you put in, it's the quality of the data you put into there. So to, we'll then determine the quality of the answer that you get out from it. So that's, that's very clear. So before we move on, how we how you, we broke that down, we're going into a bit more detail about the studies you started with and what you got to. Can you just give us a, a brief overview of the analysis relatively simply that you performed in the study? So, yeah, I mean, as you say, the kind of critical thing is starting with the searching and, you know, the search terms are all listed there in the paper mm-hmm. for people to uh, to take away and repeat. And, you know, these are things that we tend to do again in the future. And if anyone wants to rerun the recipe, hopefully uh, everything is there to get the same answer. Definitely. So once, the, once we identified the studies, it's important to assess the quality of the studies. So Newcastle Ottawa scale is, uh, is the school that we preferred for observational studies in brief. It looks at the quality of non-randomized study designs, focusing on selection, comparability, and outcome reporting. And we preset before looking at the studies the level at which uh, we felt that data was of high enough quality to be included. Again, you know, we didn't want this to be a go and look, have a bit of fish, set the level. So we set that in advance. For RCTs, obviously, easier process. The Cochrane Risk of Bias tool um, was used, and if a study was at high risk of bias in one or more domains, then it was excluded. Mm. In terms of the kind of analysis itself, I mean, one of the questions that kind of came up was the use of adjusted or unadjusted data. Now, typically, um, studies would prefer the use of adjusted data, but there are issues with that. So when we're considering kind of pooling and our ability to bring these studies together, a lot of the observational studies didn't report adjusted analyses. The majority didn't. So obviously, we would significantly limit the pool of studies we could include if we required adjusted analyses. Mm-hmm. Unadjusted estimates give you what we call the population average effect. So they assume that if the allocation is unbiased, um, then it will tell you about the effect of the intervention. And obviously, selection is an issue <coughs> in observational studies. However, you know, we kind of think really that surgeons tend to use the type of cement they use. We don't think many surgeons actually say, right, this patient, I'm going to do plain bone cement because of their risk profile. This one will use antibiotic loaded. So we were less concerned actually about the selection than we would be in some other areas. If you use adjusted estimates, then those give you conditional estimates, which are typically the intervention effects that would be seen in groups with particular characteristics. So that's what then is um, adjusted for in the analysis. But Mm -hmm. as our knowledge of the risk factors that actually influence your risk of um, revision for infection have changed over the years, we might actually see different adjustment strategies depending on the age of the study. 
So as we deliberately sought out studies in unselected populations, excluded studies at high risk of bias, and that there were inconsistent adjustments and whether adjustment had been used at all, we actually made the a priori decision to use unadjusted data for the pooling within it. We did do a sensitivity analysis when there was data there between adjusted and unadjusted, see if, if our assumption was correct. And actually, the sensitivity analysis on the couple of studies with adjusted data gave us the same answer. Which same answer, really yeah. yeah. No, I saw that, but that's that's really good. So, if we look on going to the the, the results of the paper, initially you identified two thousand seven hundred and forty-seven records, and, and you ended up including nine studies and one registry data, the Australian data which you mentioned. So that was. You had five study data for a hip replacement and six study data for a knee replacement, and the two sets of data from the registry making up that, that to 11. And so can you just talk through our listeners, what was the main reason for removing studies more than anything as you got down to that final 11? Yeah, well, as with any search strategy, you want the first number you come up with to be something that terrifies you. Um, <laughs> and then you start with your uh, with your criteria for the final selection. So actually just removing duplicates removed just over 1,000 from that um, initial list. Obviously, sequential approach to um, the kind of screening, starting out with title and abstracts and then more detailed uh, for those that are more likely to be included. And we got down to 119 basically on that initial screen of the kind of title and abstracts, um, basically by removing those that were non-clinical studies, that were non-comparative studies, that they were based on revision populations, were reporting outcomes for cement spaces um, rather than cemented fixation or microbiology data. So that quite rapidly kind of cut things back then until we were left with, as I say, that one Australian registry study that could be included in both and the final uh, numbers uh, for the uh, hips and knees groups. And in terms of the, the, you've touched on it already, Mike, but what was the overall quality of data like as a whole? So, I mean, there weren't many studies that we had to exclude on the basis of their data alone once those criteria had been applied. Yeah. And I think probably because we're fairly uh, constrained in terms of the requirements for it being a comparative study for the outcomes it was reporting, that actually we've probably eliminated a lot of lower quality studies already, Agreed. which is kind of what you aim for, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think in terms of the kind of types of studies in there, so if you think about the kind of hip studies, the Australian, I mean, normally the registry analyses dominate uh, in terms of population size, but in the HIPS analysis, the Australian registry study provided just under 13,500 cases. Mm. Um, there was a cohort study of just over 25,000 patients on all-cause revision only from France. One cohort study of just under 83,000, just providing data on PGI revision rate from Norway. And then the other two cohort studies, which contributed just over 250,000 from uh, the NGR from Norway, provided mm. data on both outcomes. Perfect. For these, slightly different. The Australian registry that time um, provided 98,000 cases. There was one RCT from Spain with uh, just under 3,000 cases, two cohort studies providing data on PGR revision only. Uh, they gave just over 100,000 cases from Finland and New Zealand, and then two cohort studies providing data on PGA and all-cause revision outcome, uh, just uh, over 460,000 that were from the ANJAR and Canada. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, so, so big studies overall, and like you say, the, you've sort of whittled down the, the quality ones with that review process. So looking at the overall numbers then, and obviously the, these aren't the total uh, examined in some ways because some had all-core revision and some had PGI rates, but you had a total of just almost 372,000 total hit replacements and, ju- and just over 671,000 total knee replacements. And what was the follow-up like, Mike, for those? Was that Was that pretty good generally or...? Yeah, again, and I think this is where the difficulty comes in with the interpretation, the information we're presented with. 
in these studies. So um, if you look at the, uh, the kind of follow-up ranges, so HIPs, the follow-up range from zero to 20 years, which is a nice non-informative way to uh, express the follow-up range for PGI revision, zero to 16 for all cause, for needs, zero to 13 years of both. And the averages vary in how people calculate those averages and numbers at risk. But typically, you're looking at actually fairly short-term follow-up data. I'd say the, uh, the overall average was something like three to four years. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so if, if we get to the, the, the key findings, really, what did you find? What were the revision rates, you know, all-cause, PGI, and the effect of the antibiotic-loaded bone cement for both hip and knee replacements? So if we looked at um, the revision for PGI and hips, um, the rate in the antibiotic-loaded bone cement was 0.36% versus 0.71% for the plain bone cement. So relative risk of 066 and the confidence intervals were under one, so that favoured the antibiotic-loaded bone cement. For all-cause revision in hips, uh, uh, the rate uh, in the antibiotic-loaded cement was 1.57%, and for the plain bone cement was 5.1%, um, relative risk of 0.62, but this time broad confidence, it's mm. 0.35 to 1.09. And really, you know, the, there's one study, the Engersart study from 2006, with a relative risk of 0.32, fairly narrow confidence intervals that distorts that a little bit. But yeah. uh, as I say, we're confident that actually with the overall pooling that, you know, those mm. uh, confidence intervals did cross one, therefore mm. the difference wasn't significant. Moving on to knees, so for revision for PGI and knees, the rate in the antibiotic loaded cement was 0.42%, and for the plain bone cement was 0.35%, relative risk of uh, 0.92, or sorry, risk ratio of 0.92. So 0.59 to 1.45, broadly overlapping yeah. the null. And for all cause revision rates for these, the rates for the antibiotic loaded bone cement was 1.66%, and for the plain bone cement was 2.46%, risk ratio of 0.73, and again, uh, overlaps the null, so no significant difference there. Great. So, you know, if we looking at that overall, Mike Brooks sort of bringing that together. So the overall pooled analysis has shown that, you know, antibiotic loaded bone cement appears to be protective against revision for PGI in primary hip replacement compared to plain bone cement. But for all the other analysis, there was no, there was no real significance seen to antibiotic loaded cement. Is that reasonable? Yeah, exactly that. Okay. So, you know, if we move on to that finding, I mean, I think it's really interesting in terms of, you know, and then if we look at the study as a whole, you know, the strength of it are without question, you know, it's the largest meta-analysis that's been performed looking at this um, and, and looking at both total hip replacement and total knee replacement. Um, uh, but what do you feel are the key take-home messages of that? How do we place that into our normal day-to-day practice? And I suppose as well, the caveat, caveat in that with any potential limitations you think there are to the data that's been included. Yeah, so I think, you know, this primarily is driven by observational, not RCT data. So, you know, I'd uh, really describe this as a kind of a clear association. And, you know, uh, I would avoid using that kind of causation uh, type language when we consider this even in the area where there's benefit. Mm. So I think there may be advantage in lower overall revision rates of PGI for the anti-bottic-loaded bone cement for primary THR. Um, however, we have looked at overall rates, and previous work we've done on NGR data suggests that the, the effects can be time period specific. Mm. So given the relatively short-term nature of the follow-up here, it could be that the benefit we've seen in hips would actually wane with time yeah. and come back to the null. So, you know, we don't have a kind of definitive answer on that. Is this just an early protective effect we're getting that then goes away? Yeah. Reassuringly, and really this was the kind of thing I really wanted to get out of it, there was no deleterious effect on overall revision rate seen. So, you know, confidence actually probably the practice that is happening at the moment until we've got better data or data that will inform practice more is safe. Yeah. So we don't need to kind of, you know, change practice, change what we're doing on the basis of this. 
So, as I say, you know, there could be selection effects going on between the antibiotic loaded bone cement and the plain bone cement. But, um, you know, at the individual surgeon level, when selecting for interventions, I think there's very few people out there that are saying, right, I'll use plain bone cement for this one. Oh, no, I'll get the antibiotic cement out for this patient because they're diabetic or or what have you. And again, you know, we we prefer the unselected um, population. So, actually, for once, selection in the observational data isn't as much as the problem as it can be for quite a lot of uh, studies driven by observational data. I totally agree. It's one of these unique situations, like you say, where I don't think surgeons are doing that selection at all. I think it just everybody gets it, don't they, generally now, I think it's yeah. one of the things. So just in terms of looking at the data that's already out there then, how does this fit with previous studies in the area? So we've conducted the previous review that really focused on um, implant fixation, yeah. uh, rather than specifically breaking down into antibiotic loaded and plain bone cement, although we did include that within the analysis. In that other review, we, we used broader definitions of PGI. So we actually included non-revision procedures, surgical site infections for that kind of more global coverage, you know, probably making sure you're not missing any, but also certainly pulling in cases that actually aren't prosthetic joint infection. So it allowed a kind of more comprehensive consideration, but reassuringly, the findings were concordant with the review here. So, you know, I don't think this is a problem of the definitions of the yeah. outcomes that we're using. Um, so the majority of pieces of evidence synthesis in the area have shown similar findings uh, to what we're seeing here. There was one big US study back in 2008 from Parthesi's group that found significant effect in favour of antibiotic-loaded bone cement, both for revision for BGI and for all causes. However, there were some issues with the kind of the way the data was handled within that. So they didn't require control groups. So they would take observational studies just reporting on one exposure and not the other. Yeah. which was a difference to how we'd handle things. They also preferred short-term data when there were multiple reports. Um, I think probably because they thought that the accuracy of the um, the outcome or the indication for the outcome might be uh, more um, better in those studies. They did mix primaries, revisions, and trauma procedures. And I've got a quite strong feeling that, you know, those are different populations and really shouldn't be pulled together. Yeah. So I think, you know, there were there were reasons why we might have come to a different conclusion uh, on the basis of what they had. There have been three RCTs by uh, Cheese Group. Um, two weren't eligible for inclusion in this because one was just on diabetic patients, one was on revisions only. The study of primaries they did, which we looked at to see if we could include, was small, 340, but that wasn't a kind of reason to exclude. Potentially not really reflective of, of our contemporary practice here in the UK because they didn't use clean air ventilation systems in their theatres. Right. Um, so, you know, wouldn't be considered our standard of care, but obviously that's slightly more controversial nowadays than it used to be. Indeed. Um, and they didn't have any blinding, so it was at high risk of bias, which was the reason why uh, yeah. it wasn't included. And interestingly, the findings at RCT weren't concordant with the Spanish RCT, which we were able to include, which was higher quality and larger numbers. And larger numbers, yeah. No, I think that's right. But like you say, it does seem to very much fit with the more the more recent studies that have been done in this area. And I think just to finish off, Mike, you sort of touched on it already. I think it's a really interesting point. I think, you know, in terms of the implications moving forward, you've already said, you know, there's no obvious negative effects or negative reasons for using antibiotic bone cement. And I suppose the, the question I have for you, though, isn't it, if you think about 
you know, as we going back to the beginning when we said it's such a, a such a devastating complication. If you asked a surgeon how many people would you be willing to give the bone antibody benchment to to prevent one, that number would be astronomically high, I suspect, for most people. And so, yeah. I, you know, I, I think, like you say, there's no reason really to change our practice now. But I suppose, do you think we need a clinical trial in this area? Is that feasible? Would it just be too large to give us the answer? And, and do we really need one, or do we have enough data? Do you think out there? Well, certainly on the basis of this review, I haven't changed my practice. So I'm still using antibiotic-loaded bone cement for all my patients' hips and knees. Mm. I think there is justification for doing a study there. Um, I think really if the area it's most justified in would be the knees because, you know, we haven't got a clear evidence of benefit there. And I think actually, you know, the, the final call, if we did have that data, is very likely to be driven by the health economic implications for it. So obviously, if you've got no benefit and you're spending more to do it, it's very unlikely uh, to come out in the wash as being a thing that would be recommended to be done. Yeah, I think we could do the study. There's no two ways about it. It needs big numbers. Yeah. So it needs about 22,500 patients on the basis of the effect sizes we've seen in the study. So that does go with the kind of, you know, the only way that really feasibly we're going to deliver this with the funding available to us for doing studies is in an efficient embedded trial design. That does mean that we have to be very confident that the kind of mechanism that we're using to collect the data, such as registry, routinely collected healthcare data, is the outcome that you're really interested in. So for something like revision, um, here for the indications, I think we could be reasonably confident. But even then, even if we had the most efficient trial design ever, equipoise may well be a challenge. So I think it would need some very decent scoping work up front to find out actually what proportion of surgeons would be happy, would they be selective in who um, they were willing to include in the study, could you use something like a cluster design where actually you randomise at the unit level rather than the surgeon level Mm -hmm. to stop those kind of crossovers and the complexities. So I think it would be desirable and doable. Uh, I think it will be tricky and expensive. <laughs> well, Mike, I think that's a, a good place for us to, to finish up on. So uh, thanks so much for taking the time to join us uh, and congratulations on an excellent study. Uh, that is without doubt an invaluable addition to the literature uh, and I'm sure will lead uh, to much discussion and ongoing uh, thought for us all. Uh, so thanks for joining us, Mike. That was great. No problem at all. Thank you, Andrew. And to our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us and we encourage you to share your thoughts and comments through social media and like. Feel free to post or tweet about anything we've discussed here today. And thanks again for joining us. Stay safe, everyone.